Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35, we continue a message we started last week titled Life, Death, and Hope in a Fallen World. Life, Death, and Hope in a Fallen World. And we're in Genesis 35, and we're with Jacob, who is now named Israel, for the Lord has changed his name, one who wrestles with God, Israel. And we find in this chapter a picture in many ways of the Christian life. The real Christian life is a hard life, a difficult life. It's not an easy life. Following God is hard, not easy. There's no part of the Bible, Old or New Testament, that would give you the idea that walking with God is easy. We find in this chapter a lesson for us as followers of God, a lesson for us as those who would walk with God in our day. And there are hard lessons here, and there are joyous lessons here, and there are challenging lessons here, and I would encourage you to learn them from the Word of God. For if indeed you are a child of God, you will be taught these lessons, and it's far better to be taught them from the Holy Scriptures and be prepared to live them out in your life. You can learn one of two ways, generally the school of hard knocks or school. And this is God's school for us under the Word of God, to have our minds renewed and to be made equipped, thoroughly equipped rather, for every good work. So let's pick up here in verse 1 at the beginning of the chapter. And that first point was our faith ebbs and flows. And we find that in Jacob's life as well. Our faith ebbs and flows. Chapter 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem, and they journeyed. And the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Again, the point is, our faith ebbs and flows. God is calling him back to where he first had met him before his journey. And God had already told him to go to Bethel, and he had kind of stalled out. And we find when God gives him this fresh call to return to Bethel, we find that he has to purify his house. We find that there's a needed revival, and that Jacob is well aware that these idols are in his extended household and amongst his servants. And Jacob has been tolerating this. And now Jacob, with a personal revelation from God, has a personal revival in his own soul that compels him to call his household to revival as well. And so praise God for His grace in our lives that there are these mountaintop times where we meet with God afresh in His Word, where in God's providence life is interrupted and we're compelled to think about eternity and not just our little moment in time, but eternity and the grander picture, the bigger picture and where we stand with God and where we will end. 
in our lives and how we will stand before God then, those are blessings from God. And we, we tend to wander. We're prone to wander. The great old hymn says, prone to wander, how, to, how I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That is our nature, like sheep, to go astray. And God is the good shepherd, the perfect shepherd, who ultimately will not let his sheep, his elect, those who are saved, born again from above, new creatures in Christ, washed in the blood, he will not let them go ultimately astray. But we will have seasons where we wander in heart or mind, and God brings us back, and there's personal revival. And personal revival always affects those around us as well. And so praise God for that effect. Our faith ebbs and flows, but God is always faithful. He never lets us go. He'll not lose one, John 10. They're well within his sovereign hand. And so our faith ebbs and flows, and we see that reflected in Jacob's life and really in all the lives of all the saints. You could look to Peter. His faith ebbed and flowed quite dramatically. (laughs) throughout his life. But praise God, he was a follower of God, born again from above, a servant of Jesus Christ. Again, this is review. I can't go into all the depth I did last time. Second point, death will touch us all. And we don't like this point. No one likes death. We don't. And so we tend to deny the reality of death. We live as if we'll all live forever. We live as if there are no accidents. We live as if there's no disease. Uh, We live as if death's not coming. And worse, we live as if hell's not coming outside of Jesus Christ. Much of the time. And yet death will touch us all. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. There will be the loss of fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers and brothers and sisters and children and friends and co-workers and strangers who were part of your life in one way or another, uh, but they just, now they're gone. And, and even people you, you know in the media and whatnot, and, and you feel in some sense like you know them because they've been reporting the news or, or they've been in this movie series or whatever, and now they're just gone. Because death comes for us all, for the wage of sin is death. And we're all under that curse and we will all get that wage. And so death will touch us all. And it touches Jacob here in verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree, so the name it was called Alon Bakuth. And so Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, and remember we pondered why is it that Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, Rebekah being Jacob's mother, who is deceased, why is it Deborah is with Jacob? Shouldn't Deborah be with Jacob's father's household, who is still in existence, who is still alive? Well, yes, you would think, except that Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, was likely much like a second mother to Jacob. And so when his mother died, he took Deborah, his mother's nurse, into his household to care for her and her elder years, which is very biblical and very sweet. But you see that death struck him in the loss of his mother. And I remind you one more time that his mother said when... Esau wanted to kill Jacob. His mother said, go down to my family, to your uncle Laban, for a few days until Esau's anger passes and then come back. And a few days became year after year after year and then a few decades. And Jacob never saw his mother again. She died in his absence. And so this Deborah is precious and dear to him, and now she has died as well. Death will touch us all. 
it will touch us all. And so we can't live as if it won't. We need to hold those that we love and that love us, hold them near and dear in our hearts, if not physically, and praise God for them, for they are a gift of God, but not hold them like idols. Like, should God remove them that we're going to want to curse God and die, like Job's wife said to him when he lost his children. And so, no, we don't curse God and die. And again, I remind you that the precious nature of the loved ones in our lives should compel us to praise God, for these are gifts. These are kindnesses of God to us. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it. It's a kindness to God. It's a mercy of God. It's a, it's a loving, lavished gift. And so, as Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the pain of the loss should remind us of how great a gift God lavished upon us. And so we praise Him. And while our dear loved ones are alive, we should labor that they might live forever. Death is painful, but it doesn't have to be permanent. For those who die in Christ, death has lost its sting. For those who die in Christ, they'll put off this body of death and they will live forever as children of God in new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness exists. And therefore, there's no more death. That's the good news of the gospel. But outside of Jesus Christ, outside of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, it's death and death eternal. A place that was weeping and gnashing of teeth, a very real place called hell. And so we need to live in light of death and labor for eternal life, labor for salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ so that we never have to lose our loved ones, but we'll be with them forever beneath the loved one, Jesus Christ who loved us while we were yet sinners and died for us. Third point, God is always faithful. Verse 9 through 15, Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke to him, Bethel. God is always faithful. Jacob's faithfulness ebbs and flows. Our faithfulness ebbs and flows. Death will touch us all, but death in the experience of it doesn't mean that God has forsaken us or that God is now cursing us. No, God is faithful. God appears to him again, and God reiterates his covenant, the covenant that he gave to Abraham and Isaac before him. He now reiterates with Jacob, and he reiterates as well that Jacob's name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, as he first announced in chapter 32. And so he reestablishes his covenant, his eternal covenant, with Jacob, now Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. Hold fast to God Almighty. It's not God absent-minded, It's not God pretty powerful. 
It's not God contending with the devil and we never know who will win on a given day. It's God Almighty. He is God Almighty. The one true God. Your God, our God, the only God that exists. The God before whom every man, woman, and child will stand and give an account. God Almighty. Omnipotent. And that should either be a great comfort if you're a follower of God. That should be a great comfort. He is God Almighty. He will not let you go. You will abide as a child of God in the kingdom of God forever. And ultimately, nothing in this very temporary world that's passing away can harm you in the ultimate sense. He is God Almighty. It's like a little child looking up to his daddy and saying, Are you big, daddy? And that's a question that Josh used to ask me. And now Josh is bigger than me. But why did he ask that question in his little two-year-old heart? Because he took great joy and great comfort and great peace in having a daddy that was big and strong, could protect him, provide for him. And we're to have a childlike faith like that. And we don't have to ask God, is he big? And really, Josh wasn't asking me in his sweet little boy heart at that time. He knew it. He was confident of it. He just wanted to hear it. He wanted to hear it. And so here God tells his son in faith, he tells him, that I am God Almighty. And he tells you that he is God Almighty. And as much as we want to be big for our little boys and strong for our little girls, ultimately, we're just men. We're just men. But praise God, we have a heavenly Father who is almighty. And we should take great comfort in that and great joy in that. In contrast... If God is not your God, if Jesus Christ is not your Lord, then it's terrifying that there is an almighty God. For defy him as you might for a season, you will give an account. You will breathe your last and you will stand before him. And there is no escape for he is almighty. So I am God almighty. Be fruitful and multiply A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you, I give this land. So God's going to build this great nation, and kings will come from his body. He will have descendants that are the kings of this nation, and he will give them this land. God is always faithful. Again, this is just review, so let us press on. New ground, verse 16 through 20. Verses 16 through 20. Fourth point here, death and life sometimes come together. Blessings and curses or challenges sometimes come together. Verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave, to this day. Before you think it harsh of 
his father to change his name. The name Ben-Oni means son of my sorrow. And you can understand her in the pain of heart and pain of flesh, losing her life, naming him such, but you would not want him to carry that name through his life as a constant reminder to himself and to your own heart of your precious wife's departure in his birth. So Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow, was changed to Benjamin, son of my right hand, his youngest son, born of his beloved Rachel, son of my right hand. And we see in this story of faith, this story of life and death and hope in a fallen world, this story of walking with God, we, we see a tragic blow in Jacob's life and very likely the the most tragic blow in his life, the loss of Rachel in childbirth. And childbirth is supposed to be a time of great joy and great celebration. The joy was marred significantly by this tragic blow, the loss of Rachel, the mother of Benjamin, son of my right hand, who is also son of sorrow. Or my sorrow. So Rachel died and was buried, and God was good and faithful. The wage of sin is death, and we're all under that curse this side of heaven. Praise God, the eternal curse can be removed this side of heaven through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The physical curse is still upon us. Death will come for all of us unless Christ returns before it does and we're changed in the twinkling of eye to meet the, the Lord in the air in what's called the rapture. Unless that takes place and many generations have lived in anticipation of that and it has not happened yet, unless that takes place, then we will taste death physically ourselves and we will experience it and be touched by it many times as our Dear wives and husbands and fathers and mothers and children and grandchildren and friends and neighbors die. And what are we going to do about it? Again, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to act like it's not going to happen? Are we going to act like there's no disease that's going to come? Are we going to act like there is no war that's going to come? Are we going to act like there are no criminals that commit violent crimes? Are we going to act like Cars do not have accidents. There are no drunk drivers. Or we're going to live in reality of death and deal with it by repenting of our sin and confessing Christ as our Lord and receiving the promise of life and life eternal and by calling all whom we love to repent to confess Christ as Lord that they might have life and life eternal, that their sins might be removed as far as the east is from the west, that hell would be shot to them, death eternal would be shot to them and life eternal would be open to them in heaven forever. You see, we don't want to live in light of eternity. We don't want to live in light of death. And so people die and we pump their veins with things to preserve their body and we put makeup on them, put them in their best outfit and set them out for viewing, which is really weird. It's weird to suck all the fluids out of their veins and pump them full of preservative. 
That's really strange. But that's how committed we are to avoiding death. And what do they always say at those wakes? Wakes. They never say, look, they woke up. Especially not once you embalm them. They're not going to wake up. But they say, oh, they look so alive. And people get paid a lot of money to make them look alive. But they're not alive. They're dead. In our culture, when someone dies, when Rachel died, if it was today, the experts would have already been there. And they would have ushered us off and they would have taken the body. And you wouldn't see the body again until Rachel was in her best dress with her makeup on again. Looking good. And everyone would come up and say, she looks so alive. And then you put her in the ground. Looking so alive. No, she's dead. She's dead. But by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, who was to come, you will meet Rachel. And she's very much alive. Looking far better than any mortician could make her ever look. And the son of her sorrow will be the son of joy. And that I suspect Benjamin was saved by grace alone, through faith alone as well. Praise God. Now don't miss this. Just some short time before this, Jacob called for a family revival. Hey, there's some idols here. Let's get rid of these idols. Let's worship the one true God and him alone. And you'll recall that when Rachel left her family, she took idols with her. And so I don't know if she still possessed those idols and that was part of what was going on there and and she gave them up, but I know they were given up. And, And so let me remind you that life is short. Seek the Lord. Repent. Don't keep idols in your life. You don't know when the day of death is coming for you. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Not a sparrow falls to the ground except the Lord allows it. It is coming. It is coming. I remind you again, as I did last week, we've nearly lost three of our precious saints, two of them quite young, the prime of life. We've nearly lost three just this year. And praise God, not one of them. But death will come. It'll come again. And so let us be ready. So we might celebrate that they're with Christ, that they're alive, that they're actually more alive than they've ever been. And live in light of death, in light of eternity, in light of the gospel, in such a way that all who know you, should you die, will receive one final testimony in that hour. One final call to repent. Confess Christ as Lord. It used to be a great weight upon me that, that all of my children would be in the faith, that I would not die before all of my children had received the faith of their father, had bent their knee and confessed Christ as Lord. And I'm pretty confident by the grace of God that, that has taken place. And now I have this burden for my grandchildren. And even as I celebrate the coming birth of a grandson, it weighs upon me that that grandson will be born in sin and must come to repentance and faith in Christ. The curse of sin and death is upon us all. And each precious child must, by God's grace, through the means of parents, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, and the local church, and grandparents, (laughs) come to repentance and faith in Christ. So death and life sometimes come together. 
And again, we praise God for the life, and we praise God even in the midst of the death, and we thank God for His grace that by all evidences, Rachel was a repentant believer and died in faith, walking with God in faith, following her husband as he walked with God in faith. Fifth point, and it's not fun. Sexual sin strikes most families. Sexual sin strikes most families. Boy, that's a fun point. No, it's not. It's terrible. It's terrible. You see, God created the sexual relationship for the context of marriage. One man, one woman for life. And when marriage is celebrated in that context, in that way, it tends to produce life, the perfect genetic mix of the husband and wife. Which God says, when you divorce, it rips marriage asunder and it's violent. It's like ripping the children asunder. And so when sin came into mankind in the fall, this great and powerful gift, this this wonderful gift, which I often liken to nuclear power inside of a nuclear power plant producing much useful energy, was taken outside of that nuclear power plant and made into a nuclear bomb. And that's what sexual immorality is. That's what sexual sin is. It's like a nuclear bomb. There's still a magnificent amount of power, but all sorts of devastation and death come from it. And we have never had a generation globally, globally like the generation that exists today. We now have a global Sodom and Gomorrah where this this beautiful thing that God created for the context of marriage to produce life and to be a picture of that marital Covenant, one man, one woman for life, united, becoming one, what God has put together, that no man separate, that now has been unleashed outside of the covenant of marriage, and there are nuclear blasts going off everywhere, all over the planet, relationally, culturally, and hideous death and devastation are evident everywhere, hideous, to the point now where we've gotten so far down the road of rebellion that we are openly mutilating children, openly perverting children with the applause of parents, wicked parents and wicked grandparents at parades and story times, where we have politicians openly running on this platform under the banner of the DNC, the Democratic Party, it's now become the pervert party, the sodomite party, looking to pervert your children and destroy them. It is devastating. And in all generations, when children rebel against God and mom and dad, it tends to come out first, how? Sexually. In fornication. Through all generations, that's been true. And I, as a pastor for well over 20 years, have dealt with many teens rebelling against God and parents in the sin of fornication. And praise God, some of them have been rescued back and repented and are walking with the Lord. And tragically, some of them ran headlong out of the faith, out of the church, out of their families, and some of their families went with them into sin, denying God, choosing sin over God in fornication. But we've graduated well beyond fornication now. 
And the devil is sifting humanity, humanity and gross perversion, where now we don't even know if men are men, women are women, boys are boys, and girls are girls. And it's nearly a crime already to say that there are only two genders. Nearly a crime. It's certainly a thought crime. You're certainly a a hater, a bigot, if you say there are only two genders. Where just a decade ago, you would be signing up for some trips to the couch in the local psychiatrist office if you declared yourself to be a gender that you were not. And they've, they've had to work quickly to change all of the psychological manuals to match the new celebration and commitment to perversion. They, just a decade ago, they considered this rightly to be a form of madness a mental lapse, a mental breakdown. But today I I meet children and adults as I'm out ministering the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ who laugh and mock the idea of there being two genders. That's how pervasive our sexual rebellion has become. And so if there was a threat before to our children of sexual rebellion when they hit their teens and they start thinking about who they are and whether God is their God and they're going to follow their parents' God and their parents' faith and the, the biblical morality their parents have instructed them in. And, and when testosterone and estrogen hit their systems, are they going to still follow God? Or are they going to follow the passions of their heart? There was always a threat, but that threat now is astronomical. That threat now has been increased a hundredfold. So sexual sin strikes most families, and it always has since the fall. And it strikes Jacob's family. Let's look at it here. Verse 21, Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder, and it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bila, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. And you'll recall that Jacob had two wives, and the two wives wanted more children. They were competing with each other. And they gave their maidservants to their husband as uh, technically, legally, another wife, but concubine, different legal status as far as property and whatnot go. Different world, different deal. Understand that this is incredibly rebellious and perverted for Israel's oldest son. Think about that. He's his oldest son. You think he's making a play on God's placement of his father as the authority over him. So it's a rebellion against God. It's a rebellion against dad and it's sexual perversion. It's tragedy. And when our children today fall in sexual sin, it's still rebellion against God and rebellion against dad and mom and the word of God. But now so often it goes much deeper As once you start down the path of sexual rebellion today, Satan's hooks are just everywhere, everywhere out there seeking to destroy our children's sanity. It's not just sexual perversion. It's the perversion of the mind. They're not even sane. The devil is using the internet. The devil is using cell phones. The devil is using computers. The devil is using the local schools and the so-called teachers. The devil's using musicians. It's everywhere 
to tell boys they're not boys and girls are not girls. And it's evil, profoundly, shockingly evil. And there's a new avenue down which the, the devil is parading every week, parading into our lives and our children's lives. And as much as we try to protect them from it, and you should, hear me, if you give your child a cell phone in this day and age, you're foolish. You hook them up to the computer, you're foolish. When it comes time to be hooked to a cell phone or computer, they need monitors on there, they need limits on there, they need checks and balances on there. The idea of a child having a computer in their bedroom from a young age, that would be pure madness. And that thing they call a cell phone, it's a computer. The idea of them having it in their pocket and having access to hell, the very hell that Satan is trying to drag them down into through these hooks, that is madness. The idea of sending your child into the public school system where they're teaching Johnny, he's Susie, and Susie's Johnny, and try on a dress day and don't tell mom. If you want to change your gender and you want to be called she when you're a he or he when you're a she, don't tell mommy that. That's between you and your teachers and your classmates. That's what's going on everywhere. It's satanic. The idea that parents do not have the right to parent their children and to teach their children sanity, the sanity of boy, you're a boy. Girl, you're a girl. And there ain't nothing in between. There are no options. Because there's a God in heaven. And guess what? There's a thing called a genetic code as well. And every cell of your body screams out male or female no matter how you might mutilate your body. Tragically, many of these children have already gone through puberty and become young adults and woken up to the reality that, you know what, I'm a man. I'm a woman. Now, I've, I've wrecked my body, and there's no turning back as far as the damage I've done to my body, but I'm going to be what I am and I'm going to start to turn around to mom and dad and teacher and society and doctor, so-called doctor, butcher, and say, what have you done to me? Why didn't you protect me? There is an agenda to pervert and destroy children, and it's from the pit of hell. And parents have never had such a need to protect their children from it. To send your child to public school today is child abuse. To give your child a, a phone with unfettered access to hell is child abuse. Any parent that takes their child to the so-called pride parade or, or story time hours with perverts and dresses reading stories to them should have their children immediately taken from them. But here's the tragic reality. This society is so given over to this satanic lie that what I just said, if I had young children would actually threaten my children. But I'm going to say it. And you need to say it. You need to speak truth. For no culture can long exist. No state, no nation, no people can long exist. Hear me. If the Word of God was not true and evolution was, if Big Bang cosmology was true, and if the theory of evolution was true, then we have been naturally selected for extinction. That's what's coming for this culture, extinction. Because when you embrace madness to this level, you're done. 
And we have enemies out there in the world who haven't embraced it to this level. And they're going to come and not just eat our lunch. They're going to take it all. But the word of God, of course, is true. And we're not just animals. And we don't get to decide that we're a furry or decide that we're a boy when we're a girl. We don't get to decide that we're a girl when we're a boy or that we're a dog. We're created in the image of God with eternal souls. And the word of God is clear. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image, male and female. He created them, period. And there we stand. There the war is raging. It's raging. Sexual sin throughout the history of mankind since the fall has broken into most families. And here it broke into Jacob's family. And it brought great harm. It will break into your family if you do not fight a good fight. And it may well break into your family even if you do. But fight a good fight, parents. Fight a good fight. Deuteronomy 6.6 says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when they sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That's the level of emphasis in the Word of God that we must have. We must impart to our children the biblical worldview. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're not a cosmic accident. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.26, again, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. God created mankind in his image. We are not slowly evolved pond scum, monkeys, who then became conscious and now can declare themselves to be monkeys again or act like monkeys. We need to instill the biblical worldview in our children like never before. Proverbs 4 Verses 1 through 4, hear, my children, the instruction of a father. Give attention to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender, the only one on the side of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, let your heart retain my words, keep my commands, and live. Keep my commands and live. We need to give commands to our children. Not, hey, you know, whatever you like. This would be good, maybe not, you know, who knows. Here's a lot of options for you. Thus saith the Lord, there is a God and you're not him. That's the first message you're communicating to your child. And I am God's representative. I'm what you call a parent, son, daughter. And I have the very authority of God vested in me to bring the due penalty for your sin upon your backside. To wake you up to the reality that there is a God and you're not Him. Thus, my word is law. When I say come here, you come here. When I say sit down, you sit down. When I say it's time to be quiet, it's time to be quiet. When I say go to bed, it's time to go to bed. When I say this is supper, it's supper. And what are you teaching them there? That there is a God and they're not Him. And they're subject to Him. And these are vital life lessons. And they've never been so vital. There's never been more at stake for your children. The devil has always been after children, but never like he is today. 
It's open season on children. And he has an army of perverts out there who have them in their sights. And they wear Mickey Mouse costumes. Disney is part of this pervert army looking to drag your children to hell after they mutilate their genitals. It wasn't enough to have gay day at Disneyland. Now we have consciously committed as a Disney corporation to having a high percentage of child perverting doctrine in all of our media, in all of our future cartoons and movies. That's Disney and so many other companies that are bowing to the devil himself in this and targeting your children. Target, targeting your children. Target, now during so-called Pride Month, Perversion Month, Sodomy Month, puts their display, their child-perverting display, their chest binders for your daughters in the front of the store. Right in the front. You can't get by it. You can't get in the store and not get by it. They're after your children. They're after my grandchildren. If you want to protect them, then you make your word law. It's not option. What would you like? What would you want? Would you like to go to bed? Would you like to get up? Would you like to sit down? Would you like to do school? Would you like to eat? Would you like to not eat? Authority is needed in their life. Because they're born dead in sin and trespass. They're born as rebels before a holy God. They need authority. And when you exercise authority as the God-given authority, then you find out whether or not they're choosing to rebel today or submit to the authority of God, not just father or mother. God! And when we refuse to give them opportunities to submit by refusing to give them commands, it's just a smorgasbord of options all day long and a smorgasbord of entertainments. Keep child happy. Now hear me. Child... Keep God happy. Child, keep me happy by obeying God and your God-given parental authority. It's not my job as the parent to keep you happy. No, it's your job to learn to keep God happy, to be pleasing to him and to be pleasing to me. There's been a fundamental reversal of all these basic realities with children and you must reverse the reversal, reverse the curse, reverse these lies. Hear Proverbs 4, 1 again. Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding. For I give good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender, the only one in the side of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, let your heart retain my words, keep my commands, and live. Do you want your children to live? Do you want your children to be in heaven? Do you want them to avoid the mutilator's knives and drugs? then give them commands and tell them to obey them. And when they don't, apply God's clear word. And there are a plethora of lying, so-called Calvinistic, Reformed, Evangelical Christians out there on the internet telling you God's word's not true. And they serve the evil one. They have a whole library of books to teach you how to parent against God's counsel. Because if you obey God, it's quite clear. You start with, let me make it clear, commands. Step one, give commands. Step two, enforce them. That's it. Step one, give commands. Because you're God's authority in their life. And you are holding them beneath 
the authority of God. And you're teaching them with every command that they're not God. And they're subject to God. Therefore, when they rebel against the basic commands, you need to enforce them. Well, that's not fun. That's not positive. Who said it's supposed to be fun and positive? What book are you reading? Oh, the ones the psychologists wrote. The one that the rebels wrote. You know what's fun? Righteousness. And we can have a lot of fun as a family when we're all walking with God together, when we're not lying and rebelling and disobeying. But you're going to disobey, you're going to lie, you're going to rebel. Well, the fun's over. I guess you chose for the fun to be over, at least for the hour, if not the day. But the fun's over. Why? Because I love you, son. I love you, daughter. And I'm going to fight for your eternal soul. I'm going to fight for life. Biblically. Parenting outside of God's instruction is impossible, just so you know. But they'll give you a whole long, complex list of things you do and don't do in order to find so-called success. What does God's word say? Well, first it says to instruct them. It says to give them commands. The law of mother, the law of father. Yeah, keep my commands and live. That's, that's a basic construct for parenting that children need to get a hold of. Secondly, Proverbs 3, verse 12, For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Do you delight in your children? Then you'll correct them, just like God. You don't ignore the rebellion. You don't ignore the sin. Proverbs 10, 13, But a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. Oh, I'm just going to give you some more instruction. I'm going to give you some more words. Why did you lie to me? Why didn't you obey me? You already know the answer. They're born dead in sin and trespass, parents, grandparents. They're born liars. They're born rebels. Why are you asking foolish questions? By all means, you instruct from the head down to the heart. But when they're young, the ratio of instruction from the head to the heart versus from the seat of understanding to the heart is very different. It's a much higher instruction from the seat of the understanding. The older they get, as you've been having consistent instruction from the seat of understanding, as well as from the head down to the heart, the older they get, they begin to reverse. And they may have seasons in their life where they switch back. Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. This is not a last resort. I've warned you 32 times. Now I'm going to get up and do this. What have you done when you warn them 32 times? You've taught them you really don't want to obey God, and so they shouldn't either. You've taught them that they can disobey you 32 times. He who spares his rod hates his son. You spare the rod, you hate your son or daughter. And the devil's going to enlist your son or daughter in his pervert army. Fight a good fight, parents. Fight a good fight, grandparents. Brothers and sisters, help parents in your lives. Fight a good fight. Your friends... Your relatives who don't know God, who don't know the Word of God, wow, what a tragedy, what's going on? You cannot choose peace where there is no peace. You cannot choose to let their children get sifted by the devil because, you know, you wouldn't want to upset them by saying, hey, you can't let your child be on the internet doing that. Get them out of that school. What are you doing? All of these local schools have their pervert glee clubs. And all through the year, they have different sodomite holidays. 
to pervert your child. All through the year, the pressure is constant. He who spares his rod hates his son. He who loves him disciplines him promptly. Do we hate them or love them? You let the word of God judge you. Do you hate your children? Or are you sparing the rod? Is it the last resort? Do you let them defy you and not a rod in sight? Let them lie to you, not a rod in sight. Then you hate them. You're not loving them, you're hating them. God defines hatred and love. The parent who loves his child is probably going to give a, a, a few extra spankings. You know, that seemed like it was rebellious. I, I'm not certain, but it seemed like it was. We're going to go ahead and go with that since I know what's in a child's heart. It's not finding 101 excuses as to why that wasn't rebellion. It was early in the morning. It was late at night. It was getting near nap time. You were hungry. You were full. I, I hadn't played with you enough. You were overstimulated by other children. We have 101 reasons while it's not just sin and rebellion that needs the rod. He who spares his rod hates his son. He who loves him disciplines him promptly. Promptly. We're not looking for reasons not to. We're ready. We believe God about what's in the heart of the child. So we already know what's in the heart of the child. And we believe God about what will drive that far from them. And so we're ready to act promptly. Proverbs 19, 18, chasten your son while there is hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. What's that mean? It means the older they get, without having that rebel spirit checked by the God-given authority in their life called mom and dad, then the less likely it is that that rebel spirit will ever be checked. Oh, you say, well, God is sovereign. Yes, he is. And that's a terrible excuse for your disobedience to God. God is a means, right? I hate when people evangelistically say, well, God is sovereign. If they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved. Well, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. So we go, therefore, and make disciples. God is sovereign. And he's put parents in the front line to fight for their lives, their precious lives and souls. And the devil has never been so focused on destroying children. And so I am more focused than ever as a pastor on protecting your children and on strengthening you parents and grandparents to help protect children. Protect them. Chasing your son while there is hope. Sit down, son. Nope. Chasing your son while there is hope. Go to bed, son. Nope. Chasing your son while there is hope. Come here, son. Nope. Ha ha ha. What? We were walking to the park a week ago. And we saw a modern-day parent with a modern-day son. And the mother is chasing her escapee. Totally helpless. Totally authorityless. The boy could care less what mom is saying. And she is left chasing after him in complete frustration. And that's parenting today. I'm seeing mothers telling children, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave you. Because the child won't obey at all. Child's not coming. It's time to go. They're leaving the store or whatever, and I'm just going to leave you. And they're, they're hoping eventually the child will get afraid of actually getting left, and the child will follow them. Sometimes they'll, they'll send, this is especially pathetic, they'll send a sibling in to like plead with the child to do what mom said, or at least to come along, lest you be lost forever, Johnny. Sorry. We're in an era of helpless parents where parents have lost the authority God gave them. They gave it up. And they have all these stupid parent manuals. That's what they are. They're just stupid parent manuals. Because anything outside of the Word of God, anything that contradicts the Word of God, is stupidity and foolishness and rebellion. Burn it. Burn it. You don't hear that a lot from me. 
Take all those parenting books that aren't an exposition of God's word, burn them because they are the enemy of your children's souls. Chasten your son while there's hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. So you either chasten and there's hope or you're setting your heart in the destruction and there's nothing in between. You either love them and thus you don't spare the rod or you're hating them. There's nothing in between. The word of God is quite clear. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's what's in them. So you don't have to ask, why did you do that? God already told you. You can confirm to them that was foolish. You might want to get them to confess, yeah, that was really foolish. How did I think I was going to get away with that? But this is not a conversation. And it's not a lack of information. Foolishness is bound up in the heart. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Not endless conversation with a one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old. Why did you hit your sister? I don't know. Yes, they do. Or maybe they don't. Maybe they're just caught up in their sin. They don't consciously. But, but it's wrong, and thus you're going you're gonna to get the signal that it was wrong. Those signals are going to come fast and repeatedly. And you're going to think, I shouldn't do that again. It didn't work out so well. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. It comes out in a multitude of ways, but it's bound up there. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. How far do you want it to be driven? Well, we use timeouts in our home. Okay. So they're on timeout with foolishness bound up in their hearts. You're getting them ready for the prison system. Ask Kent how that works out. And most of the time, you see parents using timeouts you see the child, he's jailbreaking, training for the prison system, how to break out. And often, mom or dad, eventually they'll just give up on the timeout because they're tired of, you know, taking Johnny back to the corner, the chair, whatever it is. They call the timeout zone. Believe God, obey God, unless you think you're wiser than God. Unless you think James Dobson is wiser than God. Those are dangerous thoughts. And the stakes have never been higher. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold correction from a child. If you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Oh, child abuse. Shut your wicked mouth. That's my response to that. The culture that's dragging kids to the pervert parade and to the man in a dress for story hours is going to stand up and say, spanking a child is child abuse? Shut your foolish and wicked mouth. Our culture is abusing children. The culture that's taking children to Dornbecker's Children's Hospital to mutilate their genitals, along with every other children's hospital in America, you're going to say spanking a child is child abuse? Really? Now, spanking a child is righteousness. Spanking a child is good and healthy. Spanking a child makes good citizens and good people, just as far as on an earthly level, but also it teaches them that there is a God and they're not Him, and that they need to repent, turn from sin, because there are very real ramifications for sin. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen: The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Hear that again, fathers and mothers. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left himself brings shame to his mother. We've lost parental shame. Children that will not obey are a shame to us. We need to feel the shame, own it, repent, and be biblical parents. Dogs that won't obey are a shame to you. Our culture's lost its mind. Train your dog or get rid of it. Get rid of it? Yeah, put it down. It's a dog. 
Now, your children have eternal souls. Train your child or he will get rid of you eventually and your God, and he'll run headlong to hell. And more than likely in today's day with a dress on. That's the reality of the world we live in. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29, 17, correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. Well, I can't preach any straighter or clearer. You can either receive what God says and obey it. You can either let it correct you. And I guarantee every parent in here needs correction. This corrects me. It corrects my past parenting. It corrects my children. It corrects us all. We all tend to want to disobey God's word in parenting. But God's word is true everywhere. Everywhere. In every venue it speaks to. Believe it. Obey it. And it's never been more important in the realm of parenting than it is today. Fight. I can't stress it enough. Fight for your children. Biblically. Take those books that might have crept into your house that don't bring this truth and have you overdoing some foolishness. Take them out of your house and burn them. And anyone you know and love in your life that's raising children up in an unbiblical manner today, you warn them or you're hating them. You rebuke them if need be or you're hating them. See, what are you doing? And you're hating their children. Pastor, you know, you you were kind of passionate today. There's a five-alarm fire burning down the world. And it's called the, the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's coming for the nursery and elementary children and middle school children first. And so I'm alarmed. You need to be alarmed. Fight. Fight for the children. Starting with your own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your true word. May it show, Lord, our own errors. May it show the evil of our culture. And may we side with truth against lies. May we side with sanity over gender dysphoria. May we side with righteousness over evil. And may we side with true love in the realm of parenting, in the realm of child discipline, in the realm of speaking truth to a culture that's dying and going to hell without it. May we side with true love and not hate. And may we never bend our knee to the accusations of hatred coming from those murdering children in the womb and mutilating them if they escape. And we pray it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.